What's the future of secession in the 21st century? We'll talk about it on episode 756 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you like it. Let people know you love it. Leave it that five-star review, that text review that helps get people listening and watching to the show. And as always, a great way to support the show is to go to McClanahan Academy. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. You can enroll, get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. You can purchase one of my classes there. And of course, that keeps this podcast free of charge for the masses, but you get great content out of that. If you love the podcast, you'll love McClanahan Academy. McClanahanAcademy.com is an awesome website, and you're going to get a real history education there. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day, and that would be secession. Now, this is a big issue. Is Is it the topic of the 21st century? I think that's what first question we have to answer. And then I want to talk about a lecture that was given uh, at the Mises 40th anniversary event. I believe that's where it was given, but it was by Ryan McMakin at Mises uh, from, from the Mises Institute. And there's a section in the lecture I want to focus on. So he's written a book on secession, and a lot of people are talking about this now. Again, I've said this before, more than at any time, I believe, in the last couple of hundred years, except for course, the war, you know, which was 150 years ago. But um, we're really seeing more discussion of secession in America and writ large in the Western world than we've had since the 1860s. Why is that? Why are people more interested in this idea of decentralization? I think there's a lot going on here. First of all, people are seeing that decentralization might offer the only reprieve from abusive central authority. I mean, by default, that's what you have to think about when you think of decentralization. And we know that the American Federal Republic was founded on this idea of decentralization. Federalism is decentralization. It gives certain limited powers to the center from the states themselves and then retains all else for the states. That's how the system was set up. And in fact, when you look at some of the earliest proposals for a union under the British Empire. There was some discussion about federalism. This is James Otis and others. They were looking at a way to preserve the empire, preserve London being in control of the external affairs of the colonies, whether it was commerce or defense, but then leaving all else to the colonies themselves. That was the principle of federalism. It's you know Jack Green has talked about this, and his books on the American War for Independence as a constitutional crisis, essentially what we had in the 1780s, 1770s, and 1760s was a constitutional crisis in the British North American colonies. And it extended out to other parts of the empire. There were other places like Jamaica that were talking about these same kind of things. So the, the structure that we have in American society with the central authority is based on a concept of federalism that developed in the Anglo-American world. I've said before, we live, we are blessed to live in the Anglo-American world. There's no other political system in the world that would provide this kind of liberty. Now, I talked about last week 
liberty, what that means. We talked about state mottos. We looked at natural rights, natural law, liberty, all these things. We talked about this stuff. But of course, all this inevitably leads to politics. Where do we go from here? If we have these things that we believe in, how does it? How is that then manifested in politics? Well, a lot of times it comes down to decentralization. When you start thinking about these concepts, even things like natural rights, if you want to use those terms, or natural law, or liberty, you're going to start looking at communities wanting to have some type of independence from other people who'd want to do things to them that they don't want to do. And I think it's inevitable. It's going to lead to that. Now, this piece that... Uh, is in the Austrian, right? So if you're a, a Mises uh, member, you get the Austrian magazine. Um, if you're not a Mises member, you know you should consider it. Um, also, if you're not a member of the Abbey Will Institute, you should consider it. Mises has a lot more resources than the Institute, uh, but the Institute has been talking about these same issues for 20 years. And there is a difference in what McMakin says here, and also what the Institute does. And the difference is that McMakin relies on Mises and Rothbard and libertarian thinkers, and he avoids a very important American. And that's because he doesn't want to be uh, associated with someone who would be considered the defender of slavery, right? And he's been very critical of John C. Calhoun, but you don't have to go outside of the United States to find someone who was as perceptive on the issue of secession, even before you had people like Mises and Rothbard, and was talking about these exact same things, the problems of democracy. Amazingly enough, when I was in high school, my senior year, the class that was required for your government credit was called the problems of democracy. Now, you couldn't get away with that nowadays. The problems of democracy. Um, it wasn't a very good class because it was taught by the guy that was the uh, basically an athletic coach. Uh, so he didn't really do much with it. But the, the structure of it could have been fantastic, the problems of democracy. Democracy has many failings. And most importantly, it comes down to simple numerical majorities. That's the real problem. And McMakin kind of dances around the issue a little bit in this section I'm going to read. And then he gets into Mises and what Mises has to say about this. But, you know, Calhoun was talking about these things long before this. And if you take uh, my class at McClanahan Academy reading John C. Calhoun, we get into all this stuff. And, of course, I've talked a lot about Calhoun on this podcast. But reading John C. Calhoun is an excellent introduction to the man. And we go through several of his documents, primary documents, to understand who Calhoun was and why we should study him. But uh, I want to get into this section on this essay. And so the, the subsection is titled, Reducing the Size of States Offers a Solution When Democracy and Constitutionalism Fail. Now that, that idea that constitutionalism will fail is very important. Because Calhoun talked about that. This is why he came up with a concurrent majority. Because he understood that the United States Constitution had already failed <laughs> by the 1830s. It was done. It was cooked. And it was cooked because of new, uh, numerical majorities. Simple numerical majorities. What would happen, and he, he pointed this out, in a constitutional system, the people out of power are going to rely on the Constitution for protection. They're going to talk a lot about it. They're going to say things in support of the Constitution. They're going to try to rely on constitutionalism to ensure 
that they can regain power. But once there, they're going to abuse the Constitution because they want to maintain power. So the Constitution becomes uh, a paper shield that has no effect, or a parchment, piece of parchment that has no effect. He also points out that the goal of politics, is, and particularly in a democratic system, is always to gain a numerical majority. And when you simply get that, when you can have the numerical majority, there is no check on that numerical majority when you're a minority entity in power. Right? So once the numerical majority has power, they're going to continue to use it to aggrandize themselves at the expense of the numerical minority. And therefore, the numerical minority will always, almost always, be in that subservient position. Now, we know that this can, this can fluctuate, sort of. But even in the American system, when we say, well, the Republicans can gain power, but what do they do with it? They simply pursue an agenda that's a little softer than the Democrats. And that's because they're relying on a numerical majority. And they think they have to appeal to moderates in the center. And so they're going to continue to move in the same direction anyways. The real minorities in American society, be on the left or the right, don't really have as much of a voice as they would if you had some type of concurrent majority. And Calhoun's system was simply to have a negative, a veto by the minority on the majority on most issues. Now, you could say that the center, if it was doing what it's supposed to do in commerce and defense only, you wouldn't need much of a, of a veto. But in, in, Calhoun's, in Calhoun's argument, he would say, well, this is how it's going to work. Because if there's always a threat of the veto, then the central authority is only going to do what's, what it's empowered to do and never go into the areas where it knows it will not have success because the veto will always be there. So, for example, it might it's going to start uh, dealing with foreign powers because the collective is better in that way to deal with a foreign power than you would have of just a simple state. This is where the founding generation would say, yeah, I mean, we want to have a singular voice when it comes to foreign policy. We don't want to have 13 voices in foreign policy. That creates a big mess. So when we have one voice, the central authority is going to do it. The president's going to be the, the uh, chief diplomat. We're going to deal with foreign powers with one voice. Now, it doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with that one voice. And so you can have dissension there. But generally, they agreed that they would put aside their differences and have one voice for, for foreign policy. Now, we know... That even in the founding generation, this didn't work at all times because you had, for example, in the War of 1812, where you still allowed the founding generation around, you had New England essentially opposing federal policy when it came to the war with, with Great Britain. And in many ways, we're committing treason. I mean, this, this was happening. So we know even in this system, there's going to be dissent, and that dissent is hard to crush. Also, when it comes to commerce, what does that actually mean? Does it mean protective tariffs? Does it mean free trade? I mean, what does this term commerce actually mean? Can you say that taxes are commerce? This is how the Supreme Court has sold many taxes, that they're an element of commerce. When you look at, uh, you know, for example, Obamacare, I mean, it was sold on a tax, right? Because you can tax uh, this interstate healthcare system, which is what was the idea. So um, taxes then become part of commerce. Is that true? So can the general government then tax whatever they want to in the name of commerce? Well, we know they can pass direct taxes. We know they can pass indirect taxes. So you get into some bigger issues, certainly. But this is where, of course, if you had a veto power, then they would certainly be confined in these very narrow areas 
or they would try to work out some kind of compromise with the entity that would veto it to try to get something done. So you give power back to the powerless, to the minority. And the whole point of constitutional government, we miss this, is to protect minorities. Not to aggrandize the majority, but to protect minorities from power. It's a restraint on tyranny. That's what a written constitution does. It's a restraint on tyranny, not a restraint on liberty. It's a restraint on tyranny. So all of that said, let me get into what McMakin says about uh, this reducing the size of states offers a solution where democracy and constitutionalism fail. He says, a second benefit of small states is that they offer a solution when constitutions and democracy often fail to protect minority rights. We often encounter the argument that the size and scope of states don't matter so long as there are elections and there are words written on parchment somewhere saying that the government, cross my heart and hope to die, will not violate our rights. It's great if that works for a time, but it quite often fails. In reality, neither constitutions nor elections protect minority rights when minority groups are a permanent minority or minority interests diverge sufficiently from the interests of the ruling majority. We see this frequently with ethnic and linguistic minorities. Ludwig von Mises himself understood this when he wrote that, quote, The situation of having to belong to a state to which one does not wish to belong is no less onerous if it is the result of an election than if one must endure it as the consequence of a military conquest. At every turn, the member of a national minority is made to feel that he lives among strangers and that he is, even if the letter of the law denies it, a second-class citizen. Now, again, he's relying on Mises here. And this is because he doesn't want to go into the American that actually came up with a solution to this problem. And that would be John C. Calhoun. You see... And the reason he doesn't is because of the stain of race and slavery. But as I pointed out before, uh, Calhoun was saying things in the 1830s and 40s that most Americans agreed with. Um, and, I mean, look, if you even if you look at Bob Elder's book on Calhoun, and I, I, I mean... I talk about Bob Elder in the Calhoun class a little bit. The recent biography of, of John C. Calhoun, even if you look at that book, he points out that Calhoun was more in the majority in the 1840s than just about anybody else. I mean, Calhoun made a statement that he believed the United States was the white man's government. Uh, the United States Constitution maintained that. And Americans in the 1840s, North and South, would have agreed with that position. So Calhoun wasn't some outlier. He wasn't a heretic. And this is where he said in the Positive Good speech in 1837, look, if we believe slavery is an evil right now, we should abolish it. We have the power to do so. We have the power to do so because the general government does all kinds of unconstitutional things, so why don't we do it now? But nobody's willing to do that. And why weren't people willing to do that? Because North and South Americans held the same general positions on black Americans in the 1830s and 40s. It didn't matter where you were. right? So... Uh, Calhoun wasn't some heretic. And you can divorce, I say all that to say this, you can divorce Calhoun's positions on race and slavery from Calhoun's positions on government. It can be done. He didn't, he didn't develop his positions on government because of his views on race and slavery. That came as a, as a sidebar. He developed his positions on government because of what he saw happening in American society. 
because of what he saw happening when it came to things like political economy and the powers of the central authority and what these, this government was willing to do over time in abusing that power. And he did think that there were going to be political minorities in the United States that needed to be protected. So John C. Calhoun was developing a system in the concurrent majority, whether you agree with it or not. His idea was to protect minorities. And of course, the end result of that would have been secession. I mean, he, he did believe in secession, though he was not an ardent pro-secessionist. Calhoun was... Uh, not well liked by the secessionists in South Carolina because they didn't think he went far enough. The other thing you can say about Calhoun is the purists, the old Republicans, didn't really think Calhoun was one of them either because they thought he was too much of a nationalist. What you can say about John C. Calhoun throughout his entire life is he always was a unionist. He believed in the union. And he believed that the concurrent majority would actually save the union. He believed that nullification would actually save the union, which he thought was beneficial. He thought the Union had positive and tangible, tangible benefits for American citizens and for the American states. Now, when that Union became abusive and it no longer had those tangible benefits, then you should talk about secession or decentralization to a point where you had independence of the states again. But while there were tangible benefits to be had, Calhoun was certainly interested in that. Remember, this man was in the federal government basically from... 1811 until his death. I mean, he he was part of the federal government in one way or another, and many years in the executive branch. Um, he was one of the best secretaries of war the United States ever had. Uh, so John C. Calhoun was always interested in the benefits of union. He believed in it. That's one thing we miss about Calhoun. And frankly, I mean, there are some tangible benefits to the union if the union would simply do what it's supposed to do. But this is where we get into the question of, will secession be part of this conversation? And he, the mere threat of it. Now, I'm going to offer some, some ideas on that when I get through this section with uh, McMakin here. But He says, similarly, problems exist for ideological minorities, especially on issues where there is little room for compromise. For example, consider a state where about half the population thinks abortion is a basic human right, and the other half thinks abortion is a grave violation of human rights. We can see a problem here, even in an allegedly decentralized political system like the United States. The Supreme Court has told the states to set their own policies, yet both sides continue to call for nationwide laws, forcing their own preferred policies on the entire nation. Confederations only work when people in one region are willing to tolerate the deviations of the people in other regions. But much of the time, the impulse to impose uniform national policy on everyone within a state's borders is excorable. And without breaking states up to match regional preferences, the only choice losing minorities have is to turn to violence or simply accept the status of powerlessness. But again, he's missing where you could have had something else if people had just listened to Calhoun. Now, Calhoun was interesting in this way. He always thought that the Tenth Amendment was that, that real check, that real break on excessive centralized power. But he didn't think there were teeth, there was enough in it that he could use, that the states could use, to enforce it. This is where he came up with the concurrent majority. This is where he came up with nullification. There had to be a negative somewhere. There had to be something out there that would allow the states, and the people of the states, more importantly, to check the power of the center. It had to happen. It had to be there. But how do you do it is always the question. And when you offer, when you make these statements and you ignore 
this part of America, this part of American history, that weakens your argument substantially. There are Americans who thought about these things. There are Americans who understood these things because of the Anglo-American tradition. And when you go outside of that, and look, Mises is great to talk about on economics and things, but he's not in the Anglo-American orbit. Calhoun was. When you go outside of it and you start looking for answers, solutions that are not in the Anglo-American orbit, in the Anglo-American system, you're missing a valuable contribution to these discussions. And Calhoun was a Republican. He always said he was, which, of course, meant that he believed in representative systems. He believed in democratic representative systems. And McMakin will talk about that with uh, Mises here. He says, in cases like this, democracy and constitutionalism offer no answer. Parchment guarantees of rights can be ignored by judges. We see it all the time. Elections are won by majorities. Constitutions may work for a time, but what happens when the majority gets large enough to amend the Constitution and abolish the protections for the increasingly beleaguered minority? The losers become permanent losers. Not, not, in a system where the minority has a negative. And so the argument against this, of course, is, well, then you're going to have government by the minority. Well, no, you won't. You're going to have government by majorities. Calhoun talked about this. You're going to have real majorities, not just numerical majorities, but real majorities, because you have to create large coalitions to get things done. So if you have enough of a minority to say, we're not doing this, I mean, or you can't, you, you, you can't get a large enough majority to get it to work, right? So you have to come up with a way to have a real majority, which would almost be unanimous. Now, you could say this virtually impossible in a system, but it's not really. I mean, there will be a lot of issues I think Americans would generally agree on that we should do, um, it's just a matter of degree or how to do it. So you could come up with solutions to things. Now, look, uh, right now it seems, for, let's take a foreign policy issue, for example. It seems that the majority of Americans are on board with this silly American involvement in the Ukraine. This actually has to do with secession, by the way. The initial impulse was the Donbass wanting to join with Russia. They wanted to break away from Ukraine, a secession movement, and join Russia. And Ukraine blocked it. And so Russia said, well, fine, we'll just invade and take you. So then that becomes a self-determination movement and moment for the Ukrainians. So we have secession on the table in both cases. Right? Ukraine was only independent because of secession from the Soviet Union. We have secession on the table in both cases. And this is where I say, you know, what is the, what is the, uh, what is the future of decentralization? And we can look at the issue in the Ukraine as an example of this. But... I would say that overall, you would probably have a concurrent majority for American involvement in the Ukraine. I think it's a disaster, but this is what you would probably have. You would get enough people that even a, a minority veto in here wouldn't work because you would have a threshold where you would have enough that it would be a, I mean, a majority that would, uh, would sustain any kind of war effort. I mean, I think you would probably get 75% in Congress, without question. So this is the issue. I mean, when you get those kind of majority, they get that kind of number, you really do have a concurrent majority. You have a, a small group trying to oppose it. But again, foreign policy is the direction of, under the purview of the United States government. Now, sending foreign aid, that's a whole other question. Sending money to the Ukraine, that's a whole other question. Uh, should the, does the general government have that power? 
that would be something that we would have to discuss, I think, in an issue where, or in a, in a, in a way that would allow for the concurrent majority and some type of negative on that. But regardless, there is a solution to these things, and it's an American solution developed by an American, a prescient political thinker in the 19th century. So he says, in other words, over the long term, the ruling majority coalition tends to win. And if you're not a part of that coalition, it doesn't serve your interests. You're, you're out of luck. Because Mises understood this, he supported the idea of local self-determination via secession and other types of decentralization. In Nation, State, and Economy, he wrote, no people and no part of a people should be held against its will in a political association that it does not want. Well, I mean, okay, I agree with that. I mean, look, all this is true. Decentralization does offer, self-determination does offer a counterweight to oppressive states for political and ethnic and cultural and linguistic minorities. It offers that. This is the whole point of this podcast. Think locally, act locally. That's that's what I started talking about uh, you know, six years ago on this show and how important it was for Americans to think about local government and protecting your own interests locally. And there's a lot of ways to do it because of the federal system that's been established in America. And even through the courts, even though the courts can be problematic, and I'm going to talk about that this week, but uh, even the courts can do some of this stuff at times to protect the local from the center. So these are really important things to discuss. Now, uh, he, he gives a quote uh, from Mises here, but I'm going to skip on down. He says, this is significant because Mises was a Democrat. He thought democracy often worked. But he also recognized that without the safety valve of secession and a process to dismantle states and change their borders, it can lead to a loss of self-determination and basic human rights. Moreover, Mises specifically acknowledged that breaking states up into smaller pieces is a means of avoiding civil wars and revolutions. Again, there's another person that thought of this, and that was John C. Calhoun. So what, what we have to realize here, and let me let me offer some things about secession in the 21st century. I don't want to drag this podcast out for you know 50 minutes. Another thing in 2023, I'm trying to keep these to around 30 minutes. One thing about secession in the 21st century, what, what does that hold for America and the rest of the world? We're seeing that Brexit, we're seeing that decentralization is something that people are talking about more now again, as I said at the opening, than any time in the last, you know, 150 years. Now, where does that leave America? Well, we know we have things like Texas out there. We have Alaskan independence. We have the Second Vermont Republic. We have various secession movements throughout the United States, Cal Exit. There's groups in the South that want to break away from the Union. There's all kinds of things out there, all kinds of secession movements. I'm not so certain Americans are 100% ready for this yet. Um, I think that, and when you look at issues like California, I think the only way forward for some of this is not direct state action. Uh, it'd have to be done through conventions and popular will, but through the mechanism the Supreme Court provided in Texas v. White, which would be that you would have Congress essentially boot a state out of the union, like California. Now, do I think that's even possible? No. And I don't think it's possible right now because there's too much money involved. And the deep state is too interested in the preservation of their own power to allow these kind of things to happen. 
This is why I think secession in some ways, we can talk about decentralization, we can talk about all this stuff, but the real path forward is more local action, things like nullification, um, things like um, you know getting people educated on the real powers of the states vis-a-vis the federal government, because the states, as we've seen in COVID, do have a tremendous amount of authority and power to arrest tyranny from the center. They do it all the time. Uh, we see it with all kinds of issues. And when the, the center is, is challenged, it they know they have no authority, that they have no clothes. The emperor has no clothes. They like to bluster and bluff, but when it really comes down to it, the states have all the power in this system. And even the lefties are starting to realize this. This is the beauty of federalism. Now, you can say that, well, we have to have a system where people are willing to except there's going to be people in that system that don't agree with you. And I think more Americans are on board with that now than ever before. I do think the left, the tendency of the left and centralization is is going to be the most difficult obstacle to all of this. Leftism, by default, progressivism is a centralizing tendency. And it's a in America, it's a byproduct of Puritanism. I've talked about the political Puritans on this show. It's a byproduct of Puritanism, and it's a byproduct of a certain type of cultural imperialism. You have to enforce your will against people that don't think like you. It is Yankeeism on steroids. And so that's part of the American political culture. This comes out of the 1850s. I talked about this last week. But when you base your positions on the Republican Party and the reform movements of the 1850s, you just say, that's real America then we're always going to have centralization. We're always going to have it because that would be making America New England. And New England, more than any other section of the United States, was interested in centralization uh, in a a larger scale throughout throughout American history. And it was always with their type of political economy and society in mind. They wanted to make America New England. And you can say, well, wait a second here. The South tried to do the same. What about the slave power? Uh, Certainly, Southerners wanted to have some type of power in the government. They were willing to accept minority status as long as they could just maintain certain parts of Southern society. And we can say that they wanted to uh, bring slaves into the Western territories. This is true. They wanted to do that. Um, they were willing to accept minority status, though. It was New England that was not willing to accept any kind of minority status, which is why they started pushing for secession, nullification, and then later nationalism very early on. John Taylor of Caroline recognized that the Union was not going to work if one section or the other would abuse the other side. And so we really have to look at Virginia more than any other section, or more than any other state, I should say, as the important center of American decentralization. Calhoun's great, and the concurrent majority is the American expression of what McMakin's talking about here. I I wish that he would do more with that. You need more Calhoun in that way and less of European thinkers. There's American responses to this. But when you look at John Taylor of Caroline and the tertium quids and people that talked about real decentralization and real federalism and real republicanism with a lowercase r, these are the people we need to be talking about. So I'm not so certain that uh, I think secession is going to be an important part of the of the political process or the threat of it 
moving forward in the 21st century. We're already 20 years in. Over the next 75 years, of course, I won't be around 75 years from now, but over the next 75 years, maybe some of you will that are listening to the show if you're young enough. Maybe you'll see secession become uh, something that is uh, you know, much more accepted throughout the world and smaller states, decentralization. We know Kirkpatrick Sale did a lot of great work uh, on, on this issue and has done a lot of great work on this issue. You know, uh, Core, uh, Small is Beautiful, um, that's another uh, a great uh, a book to look at. But um, I think that this can happen, but we need to have a much greater conversation. And people need to become more independent in and of themselves to make these things work. That's another part of this. When you look at the 1860s in the South, you had pretty independent people that just went home. And that's lost nowadays. Too many people are not independent. They're tied into the system in too many different ways. And so that's going to make any kind of decentralization very difficult to do because the first question is going to be, well, how do, what about my paycheck? What about my investments? What about um, you know, all these things? What about, you know, what about food? What about food security? Uh, what about security, personal security? What about all these things if we start you know, breaking off? Who's going to handle these things? If you're elderly and on a fixed income, you've got Social Security and you've got Medicare. Well, who's going to take care of that? These are big issues that people have to work out how that would how that would generally uh, work and carry forward in a secessionist society that I think you know is not really being addressed enough for these kind of things to happen nowadays. But it doesn't mean education can't be there, and we can't talk about what you can do in your own life, your own independence, at your own local community to try to solve some of the problems. You have a lot of power at the local level. You just have to exercise that power. You have a lot of power at the state level. You have to exercise that power. And that's an important part of the education process. And I am positive in that way. There, there's a lot more developments here. The simple fact that people are talking about these things now more than, any, than ever before is a positive development because we can see the effects of that and people thinking, well, um, you know, maybe we could come up with a better solution in our state than at, in Washington, D.C., or in our school district than in your state capital. So a lot of things are happening. Um, I'm, I'm uh, you know, very positive about these developments. And so this is an interesting piece. Again, more Calhoun in our political discourse would be better. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.